I didn't learn those lessons until college and beyond. Like I, I was used to being out front and not having to deal with anyone clipping my heels or, you know, elbowing me on the track. And then when I got into college and as I started to get better, it was like, oh no, you're making contact multiple times each loop around the track. And sometimes it's very aggressive contact. And so that was something that I learned much later to not waste any energy on that. Actually, that would make me feel powerful. Like, oh, you're elbowing me, you think I care? I don't care and you have something coming, you know, like use it. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold, say yes to adventure, say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Waddell Living It. Today, we have Kara Goucher on. She is a good friend because we work together at NBC. She was the first American male or female to stand on the podium of the 10,000 at a world championships. That is a really big deal. Two-time Olympian, podium finisher at Boston and New York, so celebrated uh, marathoner as well. Three-time NCAA champ at Colorado. Uh, married to an elite runner, Adam, mother to a budding runner, Colt, fighter for clean sport. Also, and we're going to get into this, suffers from repetitive exercise dystonia. She's been really forthcoming about that. Kara, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Chris. I'm excited to be here. You know, I have gone back and I've looked at some of your Facebook feed and some of this stuff. So Colt, your son, is joining the family business. <laughs> he's dabbling I would say right now he definitely is running some and liking it um but and in a good way he's involved in a lot of other things which I think is good because he's so young he's really into football and he knows he's allowed to play that until it becomes tackle he's really into music um he has tried out for like every little thing he can with music this year which is killing me because he has to be at school so early but so yes he's definitely into running but it's still, it's not as, it's not his deep love yet, which I think is good because he's pretty young for that. So he's, he's an apprentice, let's say. Yeah. As opposed to really joining the family business right now. Yeah. Yeah. He still has like one foot in one foot out. He's not officially in yet. Not officially in, but it sounds like he's taking it pretty seriously. What is that like for you? Because running is such a huge part of your life such a huge part of Adam's life. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of the culture through which you see a lot of the world, right? Because runners are a little bit different. How is it now having a next generation? And you have a lot of answers, but yeah. at the same time, you probably have a lot of questions too. It's kind of like the happiest thing that's ever happened to me in my relationship with him and also the most terrifying because I just want him to love it for a long time. Like I'm 44 and I love it just as much now as I did when I first discovered it when I was about his age. And so I just don't want him to feel pressure or feel like any performance uh, requirements. I just want him to be like lost in his body and that feeling. You know, last year was the first time he ran and one night I was putting him to bed and he was like, mom, when I'm running, like I, my heart's about to explode. I just feel so alive. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. We're besties. That's totally how I feel. Right. So I just want to keep cultivating that. So that it's this experience of him and his body rather than some sort of expectation that he has to fill the shoes of his mom or dad or something like that, which, I mean, we live in Boulder where my husband and I are both Olympians there. That pressure is there, but we just really try to back off from it. There's the pressure there, but then there's also, there has to be some genetics there as well, right? So that can be helpful. How did you 
get into running? Like, how did you get this bug? It was your grandfather, right? Yeah, my grandpa was a lifelong runner. I mean, he ran into his 80s and um, he took me from to my first race, like race run when I was six years old. And it was just our thing, right? I'm the only one he brought. He didn't bring my sisters. And he Why is that? loved- Why was I it think, just you? I think I was always shy. I was a little bit more reserved. My older sister is much more like, she knows what she wants and she goes for it. My little sister was too young at the time. So it's just sort of our thing. And I actually fell at the beginning and he thought, oh, I mean, I was kind of wimpy. He was like, oh man, this is going to like, this is not going to end well. But instead I surprised him by popping up and being like, they're getting away from us, you know? And so he told that story literally like he passed away from COVID in 2020, but like he was still telling that story to like people within years of that happening. That was like his favorite story to tell. Like I'm the one that got her into running without me. She wouldn't be an Olympian. Uh, so it was just like a little something I did here and there. And I, but I didn't, it was like maybe three times a year. I'd run with him out at the cabin or we'd go run the Mother's Day run together. And how uh, long and the race was that first one? It was just a mile. Just a mile. Yeah. Okay. Which you know, a mile go, when you're six is a long way though. Oh, it is a long way. Yeah. Like I started running these little races um, that were like a quarter mile, be me against the boys. And I'd be like in my kids. Like I had no idea what running shoes were or anything like that. Um and then in seventh grade was the first time I joined organized running. And that's when I was like, my world was like blown that you could meet as like a sport and practice and you'd get to run, you know, every day. And I thought that was amazing. Which, that's when I fell hard. Yeah. Which, which is interesting because I think that there are, there are definitely other people in other sports who are like, oh, you're going to make us run now. Totally. Totally. You're and like, I, mean, I get I, to run? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did all sorts of sports that came from my mom was remarried for a lot of my childhood and my step siblings were very athletic. My older sister is very athletic. So is my younger sister. So I came from this family that was like always going to tournaments and all this stuff. And so if you name a sport, I've probably tried it, but I really was just not good at anything, you know, and so I played all the sports and I did all the things. But running was the first time where like, I didn't have to think about where I was planting my ski pole. I didn't have to think about the way I was holding my racket. I could just do it and let my lungs be the guide, you know? And so, yeah, what other people find is torture. I found like super freeing. And when you started, was it, was it cross country? Was it track or was it all of the above? It was cross country. So I ran for my middle school and at the time, and I think this is still how it is, but in Minnesota, they were having budget cuts. So a lot of middle schools were losing sports. So you could participate at the, your local high school if you were in middle school. And so I ran uh, seventh grade for my middle school, but then the high school cross the high school coach asked me if I would come out for the high school track team. And so I did. And there was like a little group of us, like this group of girls, we were so little, these seventh graders, and we would get our backpacks and we'd walk down to the high school and we ran for the high school. So I had the same coach for the second half of seventh grade until I graduated. What kind of events were you running? So you're running on the track because you've been a distance runner. Were you a distance runner from the beginning? Yeah, I would run the um, the 800 in the mile when I was younger. Um, when I was in high school, I did run on our four by four, which is kind of funny. I was the slowest leg, but we qualified for state and stuff. But I was like hidden in that second leg place. And then as I got a little bit older, I started running the 3,200 more. So it was just the mile and the two mile, basically. Um, and, you know, I loved it. I loved it so much. I, then the two mile was always my favorite event. 
the further you could go, the better it was for you. Totally. And my senior year, they switched cross country from 3,200 meters to 4,000 meters. And I like that even more. So I always kind of knew like the farther it goes, the more I like it. But I mean, I wasn't interested in running a marathon or anything like that. I just knew the longer it went, I would have a better chance to do well. How does that work? Because cross country events, like I, I've watched, I think the cross country, the start of a cross country race is is one of the scarier things that I've seen where there's just this gigantic line of runners and everybody goes out so hard and probably goes out harder than they really should. So it's this mass start craziness. Yeah. How does that work for you? Because you know that it gets better later on. Are you just picking people off? What's what's the mentality? I got to say back then, I didn't have confidence in that way. Like when I got to college, that's how I started to run. You know, like when I won the NCAA cross country championship at the mile, I was in a hundredth place. And then I ended up winning because I was confident that they're going to slow down and I'm going to swoop by them. But I didn't have that when I was younger. It, I was going with whoever was leading. And a lot of times I just try to bury them early on. And then I would just be dying and suffering at the end. Like racing tactics were not my thing until I was an adult. <laughs> you mentioned to Colt in his last race, he got elbowed at the start. And you, you put a parenthetical little uh, get used to it. This is, when did you get elbowed the first time? Was it first race? Do you remember this when it's a contact yeah. sport and you didn't think it was a contact sport? I don't remember when, but I do remember getting elbowed pretty hard by a teammate and as a 10th grader and being like rude. But I mean, that's just part of the game. Yeah. So Colt was upset after this race and he, he, he he's sensitive. So am I. Like we both share this very sensitive heart and you know, it hurt his feelings, I think, that this teammate had elbowed him. But I was like, this isn't a thing you can be hung up on because that's actually part of the sport. And as you get older, older, you will see that that is just a part of it. And just as you were describing that big starting line, that's how it was. They had all the schools, 14 schools in the district racing each other. He had never run in a race that big. And so that's exactly what happens. Everyone's boxed in and tight together and you're just trying to get out. And so, yeah, your best friend might elbow you and you can't take it personally you just have to say, I'm out of there. Let's go. You know, you can't take it as like some personal message someone was trying to send to you. Because it hurts and the race is going to hurt and then the emotional hurt. And so, so this pack racing is something because just watching, especially like watching you guys on the track and watching like an 800 or a 1500 and 5,000, 10,000, same thing where, where you're on top of each other, where your stride is leading into somebody else's stride or arms and legs are flailing all over the place. And you guys can get way tighter. Like as a wheelchair racer, we can't get quite as tight just because there's a fair amount of machinery. Right. It keeps you separated from other people. That mentality, is that something that, that you look at him and go, okay, look, this is how this works. This is how you absorb it mentally and and make it work for you because you kind of have to either it's going to defeat you or it's not right totally I think you know he's still so young like I didn't learn those lessons until college and beyond like I I was used to being out front and not having to deal with anyone clipping my heels or you know elbowing me on the track and then when I got into college and as I started to get better it was like 
oh no, you're making contact multiple times each loop around the track. And sometimes it's very aggressive contact. And so that was something that I learned much later to not waste any energy on that. Actually, that would make me feel powerful. Like, oh, you're elbowing me. You think I care? I don't care. And you have something coming, you know, like use it. But he's just a little young to think about that kind of stuff yet. And, you know, like if he, if he pursues it, um, I will bore him to tears with all of my advice on mental preparation and all those things. But right now he's just running hard and his heart's pumping and his lungs are going and it's, you know, he just like wants to do the best he can, but he doesn't want to get in that deep, especially with mom. Well, I mean, but mom does have a, a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> so, so when he wants to tap into that, I'd imagine it's going to be great for him. In college, you were doing you were doing both, both cross country and and track. Does track become more important then? Did you start thinking about, hey, I go from here to to the Olympics, or or I'm going to stick with cross country and go to the road racing kind of circuit, or do you both do both really? Yeah, you do both. I mean, I I you know I really struggled my first couple of years of college. I was away from home. I uh, had a lot of injuries. I was like, like really questioning myself if I was as good as I thought I could be. And then when things started to roll um, a little bit later, like my end of my sophomore into my junior year, it got better. Why did but they start you, to roll? Um, honestly, I had like a surgery, compartment surgery. I had all these lower leg issues and stress fractures. And then I have like no calves at all, but apparently they were overdeveloped for the body that I have. And so it took like a year to get it diagnosed. But then when they when they released that sheath, I honestly felt like I was cheating because I could run so hard without having lower leg pain anymore. And so I was finally able to stay healthy and like I qualified for nationals as a sophomore and got and surprised everyone, including myself and got second. And that's when I, in the 3000, and that's when I started thinking like, oh man, like maybe I, maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe I am good. So it was important to like do really well on the track, but also it's important to do well in cross country because cross country is everyone together. So it's, it's like a mental toughness. The courses are different. The courses are hard. The weather is harsh. And so whoever wins NCAA cross country, it really does send a message. And so that was very important to me that I won that. And plus my husband had won it. And so like, there was a lot of motivation to like follow in his footsteps and to be as good as he was. So they were both really important, but I knew that the goal was to get a contract and the contract would lead to track. Is it the mental toughness that is the most important part for you? Is that the is that sort of what what captures you for uh for for running? And then also, were you guys were you guys dating back then? So we started dating. Um, when did we start dating? We started dating in the spring of two thousand, and so that was my junior year of eligibility. So that was also an Olympic year. So I had qualified for the Olympic trials and Adam had as well. And then he made the Olympic team and I didn't, of course, I made the final, but I, I placed ninth. And I remember like crying in the shower because I didn't want to ruin like his happiness. Um, but so that was like also just a good experience of like, okay, I want to be at this level. I want to be at, like in four years, I want to be making this team, which isn't even close to what happened, but um, that was a great experience. But the mental side. So the mental side has always been my best friend and my worst enemy. I've always doubted myself. I've always had a hard time. Not like my, my um, old therapist used to say, you could get a degree in future think. Like I'm always thinking about all the horrible things that might happen instead of just being like present in my body. 
And so that was always like when I was really working on that, I saw it as my biggest strength. But when, but a lot of times it was my biggest weakness and I would like the race would be over before the gun even went off. It, it is interesting. That's a, cause, cause it does feel like preparation, like what might go wrong, what could go wrong. I mean, they talk about like, like this is one of the issues for like lawyers, right? Is the, that they've got a plan for every possible contingency that can, that can happen and why it's so emotionally exhausting. Emotionally exhausting is not necessarily a great way to run fast, right? Yeah. How did you get over that? How did you how did you get into yourself and just say, oh, I'm just fast and I'm going to take it as it comes? I mean, honestly, I never got over it. It's something I had to work on just like practice. I saw a sports psychologist at least once a week for most of my career. Um, I started seeing someone after college and it became just something that I knew I was always going to have to work on. You know, I would have moments in practice where I was like, I'm the king of the world, you know, but then as, but then when it really came to race day, I was like, I don't belong here. My parents weren't like professional athletes. I grew up eating spam. Like I never even ate a vegetable until I went to college that wasn't camp, you know? So I would just have all these thoughts of like, I don't fit in. And so I really had to work on that. And for me, the biggest thing that helped me was like really just being in my body in that moment and just focusing on myself and not worrying about what anyone else looked like, felt like was doing like I I have my own preparation and the more I focus on that the better I did in competition as someone who has gone through such you know trials and tribulations on the mental side had a therapist etc cetera, etc cetera, do you have all of the answers but not necessarily all of the answers for yourself like great person to give advice but not necessarily always able to take your own advice Oh, I'm the worst. And, and that's so funny you bring that up because I have a lot of athletes that come to me privately and ask me about stuff. How did you handle this? How did you handle that? And I'm like, just like a sensei telling them. But then when it comes to me, I'm like so self-sabotaging, right? So I think that's just like the curse of my, of whatever with me, right? Like I can see very clearly other people and how they're, what they need and how they need it. But for myself, then when it's me, I'm like, but I actually don't know. I actually am from Minnesota. I actually did just grow up on spam. So yeah, it's like, you know, you're always like the last person to take your own advice. And that's me a hundred percent. How did the 10,000 at the world championships happen. Obviously there was a buildup to this. It didn't just happen. I mean, three-time NCAA champion, but at the same time, that's to, to be historic, to be the first male or female to be on the 10,000 meter podium, which in, which in some ways is an American thing, but in, but in some ways it's, it's like almost historically, we kind of look at it and think, well, that's sort of for like the rest of the world. What, how did, how did you get, there and and I want to know what that day was like okay well it changed my life in in a moment but I even heading over to the track I wasn't thinking I was gonna be on the podium you know my coach at the time had had a heart attack like just a month before I was so grateful he was alive I had this sports psychologist who I was working with at the time and I mean fast forward we end up like having a horrible relationship or whatever. At the time, everything was good. And I even remember my husband being like, I'm going to, you know, did you bring your metal podium outfit? And I was like, what? No, I don't even have room in my bag. So he brought it. Um, which so he thought that you could be on the podium, but you yes. didn't really. No, 
I, so he was just like, your training has gone so well. And, and it had gone well, but like, if you looked on paper, I was ranked like somewhere in the upper twenties or even low thirties, right? Like my PR was not on par with these other women. And so I do think it was one of the best races I've executed mentally, whereas that I just really tuned into my own self and there was a little luck on my side. It was extremely hot and the race became extremely tactical because no one wanted to go out and push on a night like that. You know, it's like 80 some degrees and hundred percent humidity. I mean, it was just suffocatingly hot. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it was just so hot. And so there, as the race was unfolding, I, I was getting a little bit more confidence. Like the more it went, the more I was like still up there in the lead pack. I was like, wow, I'm still here. I'm still here. And I was just trying to run a very clean race. I was just trying to run on the rail as long as possible. And, you know, right before I went out, my coach had said, you know, you're in the best shape of your life and you can sit back in 20th and kick yourself into the top 10. But if you put yourself in the top 10 the whole time, maybe something special could happen. So like there was a little omen of like, okay, you know, and then, so it was just like this big pack and it's hard for me to remember now. I think with 3K to go, two women just took off. And then all of a sudden everything splintered and it was just me and three other women. It was Joe Pavey from the UK and Kim Smith from New Zealand. And we're running and, you know, I'm thinking like, this is crazy. Like I'm going to get fifth in the world, you know, like I'm having these thoughts that are like taking me out of the moment. Um, are you trying to but- kick those thoughts out of your mind too? I could be, well, first, no, stop yeah, thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, I hope my mom's watching this. Like, I'm going to get fifth in the world. Like, who would ever think this? But then Kim Smith fell a little back when we had about a lap and a half to go. And all of a sudden I was in fourth. And then I just started thinking like, someone's life is going to change forever tonight in a lap and a half. And like, I, even though I'm running as hard as I can, I have not dug to that dark place yet. And literally I'm thinking all these things. I'm thinking about my coach and his health. And so I, I literally make this plan with 200 to go. I'm going to go as hard as I can by Joe Pavey. And if she matches me, that's fine. I'm going to be fourth in the world. But if she doesn't, you know, who knows what could happen? And so that's what I did. I just like sat there, sat there. And when we hit that 200, I just let everything out I could. And she didn't challenge me at all. And I, when I crossed that finish line, I act like I won. I mean, like I went insane. Like if you saw a picture, you'd be like, oh, she won. No, I got third. Um, But it was just like this crazy moment because I never, those are the things you dream about, but they seem so far away. You know what I mean? Like I had always dreamt about going to the Olympics. I still hadn't made an Olympic team yet. I had dreamt about winning a medal, but it just seems so far away. And so, yeah, I mean, and then my life, it just changed in a moment. Like it was just never, it was really never, my career was like never the same from then on. How was it never the same? What do you mean? Two things. One, financially, all of a sudden I started getting paid to run. Before that, I could only get into meets that Adam was running at because he was the bigger star. So they'd let, you know, they'd be trying to get Adam to come. Then he'd be like, okay, I'll take it for that amount of money as long as you let my wife run as well. Um, I'm serious. And that's how the business works. Um, And then obviously I had qualified for world championships by placing second at the US championship. I had earned my spot there. Like Adam didn't get me into the world champs, but So first of all, just opportunity, like all of a sudden, all the meet directors wanted me to come. And then the second thing was financially, like all of a sudden I I had never been given an appearance fee before. I had to pay my way to go everywhere I went. All of a sudden appearance fees, I started getting my contract. They basically put another zero on there. Like my life, like that, I went from nobody to somebody. I mean, I've never seen the footage, but 
apparently they didn't even know who I was. They kept calling me the other American because she was so successful and good, Dina Castor. And we looked nothing alike, but they didn't know who I was, you know? So it was totally life-changing. I mean, the next morning, Sonia Richards-Ross, who's the Olympic champion in the 400, calls my room, wakes us up and is like, oh my God, you know, like it was just day after day of just craziness. And by the time the season ended, I needed to like disappear. And I actually went to Minnesota for like two weeks because I was overwhelmed. Like I needed to just be myself, not this runner, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. The Your relationship with Adam, did he always believe in you more than you believed in him? Was it a reciprocal kind of thing as well? Were you were you also like building him up? Is it, is it part of the relationship? How does How does that work for a running couple I mean he has always believed in me like like I said he brought my metal uniform outfit that night but we didn't know how it worked and it turns out they drug test you and then they give you the metal the next day but we didn't even know any of this stuff you know um he's always been like a huge cheerleader and I he has been like I know it's cheesy but a big inspiration for me because I saw him at Colorado and then I saw him move on to a professional I saw him make an Olympic team and he showed me like what was possible as like a clean athlete, you know, so it very supportive of each other, but that doesn't mean there weren't times where it was hard. I mean, like I, he was the star and he was the future of American distance running. And then I kind of just swooped in out of nowhere. And I mean, it went from like, so dramatic from one year, I'm like getting his coffee, carrying his spikes, getting him over to the track to the next year, people being like, Oh, you brought your brother with you. I mean, it was like dramatic shift, right? So we had to work through that. Like that actually took a couple of years to be like, okay, like we have to like ignore what other people are saying and remember that we're each other's biggest cheerleaders and biggest supporters. But, but that was something we had to work through. Yeah, I mean, it's funny when you say that, did you bring your brother? But no, like, really. it's not funny when it happens. <laughs> no, you're just like, um, no, this is my husband who last year you were asking for his autograph, you know? Ah! So. Wow. When did it go? So, so two Olympic games and ran 5k and 10k at the Olympics. And, and can you tell people, cause most people don't really know, like you see, you see a 5k on the track, you see a 10k on the track. How many laps of the track are the 5k and the 10k? So I ran in 08, I ran the 5k and the 10k at the Olympics and the 5k is 12 and a half laps, but you have a prelim. So you have to do it twice. If that's 25 laps and the 10k is 25 laps. So I ran 50 laps in Beijing. 50 laps in Beijing, which is just, I mean, it's just one of those things that, that is hard mentally as well. I've realized that you're in a pack, but just going 400 meters, 400 meters, 400 meters over and over and over again it seems like it's never ending. Does it seem like that on the in the race, or is it one of those that you're thinking so tactically in terms of positioning and in terms of you know I feel good now. When am I going to kick? I mean, is it 200 meters? It's interesting at the World Champs that you left it to 200 meters in a in a 10k that it wasn't something that started at 300 or 400 or I thought at 600 you might be saying okay I'm going at 600 meters because. I, I just I just marvel at you at you endurance people you know that that think oh yeah I'll go at six hundred meters you know for me like six hundred meters I'm like I can do six hundred meters but that's about it then I'm done I'm dead. <laughs> well, I mean, you have to be really just be reading the field. I think like that's one of the things that 
I didn't run particularly well in Beijing in the 10,000. It was the first event. I was a medal favorite and I was very overwhelmed with that experience. I wasn't with my husband. He couldn't get into the village. I was in a place where I wasn't with the people who had gotten me there. Um, the day, the night of the 10,000, I was at the warm up track and my husband like walked by and waved and I just started crying. So like my headspace was not great. I ran much better in the 5,000, which was later. Um, Place-wise, I placed eighth in both, um, but it it was a much better performance. And I mean- you made finals, to, but, but eighth in yeah. both, right. Yeah, I mean, actually I was 10th on the day, but two people have been disqualified. And then I was ninth in the 5,000, but someone has been disqualified. So, you know, but um, I just was very overwhelmed by the whole thing. And, you know, but I felt like in the 5,000, I did a much better job of staying in my body, reading the signs. Well, this is what I was gonna say. I'm not the most talented person. I know that. I know, I always knew. First of all, like, look at my build. I'm 5'8", I'm resting against these super compact women that are 5'1", that weigh literally 50 pounds less than me, right? Like my mom, the, the family joke is always like, well, it's easy to find Kara, you know, because everyone's below her. Um, so I knew I wasn't the best one, but I really was good at reading other people's moves. And that's where I think I was able to excel, especially in the marathon where I wasn't the fastest, but at a challenging course, I was good at like, reading the moves what's real what's not so I feel like that was where my skill set was so yeah in the 10,000 I kind of got blown away I thought it was going to go a very different way and it ended up being like a screamer from the gun and that really really caught me off guard and then in the 5,000 I did a much better job of reading the effort moving up through the pack and being there just was like I ran the fastest 800 of my life in the last 800 of the 5,000 and it was seven seconds too slow. Someone else ran it seven seconds faster. And so I had to take that performance and say like, okay, well, that was good. That was literally the best that I could do. And it just ended up being eighth. You talk about being able to read people's moves and, and that sounds strategic. And we'll get into this when we talk about being an analyst as well, because sometimes it's a lot easier to interpret the race when you're sitting there very comfortably in a studio as opposed to on the limit, you know, fully redlined in, in the middle of a race. But when you're talking about being able to read people's moves, I mean, that is just saving energy, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, I can tell by the way someone's breathing and they're, they're doing an explosive move, like they're never gonna be able to hold that. But I also know when this person goes, she is very calm and collected. And when she goes, I need to be ready to see her out of the corner of my eye. And so I'm like moving to the outside of the pack because I'm like, I don't want to be on the rail when she goes because I can tell she's going to go. And so it's things like that where the person who's kind of flailing goes, I'm like, they're not going to, that's nothing real. That's not going to, like, they're going to come back to us. We're going to swallow them up. I don't need to worry about my position yet. But so it's, it's like, it's difficult because you're trying to be within yourself but you're also trying to, and especially those races, like the Olympics and the world championships, they become so tactical because there's no pacer pulling everyone out. So you really have to be able to, you know, you could be the fastest person in the race, but if your tactics are horrible, you're going to get buried. So those are the races I liked because I felt like I actually had a shot rather than when I would be racing in Europe and people would just be running crazy fast times. I'd be like, all right, I'm just going to hang on and see what I can do today. But I knew I'm, you know, I'm not going to win this race. Going from the Olympics to the marathons, I mean, having been on podiums in Boston and New York, is is one more prestigious 
than the others. I mean, we're, we as Americans are so like Olympic oriented, mm-hmm. but then like I grew up in Massachusetts and, and so Boston was, Boston was it. Right. And, and that came from the modern games, right. They had the Olympics in Athens in 1896 and on the boat ride home is when they decided that they were going to do the Boston Marathon the following year. Does one does one rank higher for you in prestige or is it like it fits you better or how does that work? Yeah, I think definitely the public perception would be, you know, I ran the Olympic Marathon in 2012 and that would be the highlight. But for me, no, it is a Boston or a New York. It's the history. It's the fact that it's not every four years. It's every year the best people are running this. So the standard is so high. And, and we're not capping teams at three three athletes per, you know, only three Kenyans can run Boston this year. Only three Ethiopians can run Boston this year. It's like, if you're running well, you can come. We don't care how many Ethiopians are coming or Americans or whatever. Um, I, ran, I, was, I also ran the world championship marathon. And so I, had, I loved running the world championship and Olympic marathon, running the world championship marathon really helped me be ready for what the Olympic marathon would be like. But for me as a marathoner who like lived it and breathed it for, I don't know, like seven years, those races, the majors are the ones that like, I, I would have traded an Olympic medal to win New York or Boston for sure. I don't have an Olympic medal to trade, just so we're clear, but I would. Hypothetically, if you had yeah, one. Yeah, if I had trade. one. Yeah, for sure. Is there any kind of different mentality of showing up at like a world championships or an Olympic marathon where if you go to a regular marathon, even a Boston or New York, I mean, you have tens of thousands of people who are running that race. Obviously, you are not seeing any of those tens of thousands of people other than getting to the starting line you're not if, if you see any of them afterwards things have gone horribly badly right. but is it a little bit weird when you kind of are in a marathon and it's a marathon of 30 people or something like that you look at it and it's just just this pack just this small little group that's going all this long way yeah it is weird that's why I'm so glad I, I was so glad I ran the world championship marathon in 2009, it had to be 2009. Yes. Um, and that opened my eyes because it, you're, you're lining up as just like this tiny little group of people. And you're like, wow, we're about to go duke it out for three miles. And there's like, it's just a little group of 40 women or, you know, it seems so small. And also just like everything about the race is different. Like at the majors, the water bottles are stretched out, only three people per table. But at the world champs, the tables are back to back to back to back. And all the Americans are at one tiny table. Right. And so like when you go for your water bottle, it's like roller derby, like people all over and people are throwing stuff and it's totally chaotic. So I'm glad I did that because I I felt like I was more prepared to run in London. Um, But that's so there's some of about that. That's like the prestige and everyone's really watching you. Like all the people out there aren't there to watch like their sister. That's going to be coming two hours later. They're there to see you, which is fun. But the environment at Boston with all the people invested and I don't know, it's just, it's just so different. And for me, that, that excites me more. What, what is it like going down Boylston and, and, and is it, is Boylston different than Central Park? I mean, you've been on the podium of, of Boston and New York, I mean, two 
ridiculously iconic like you take the turn at the fire station and you're on boils and it's just lined with all of these people and I, I i i mean i might be biased being from massachusetts but i feel like boston was the greatest race that i'd ever done just because everybody seemed to care so much yeah i mean i agree like i ran new york first and i was born in new york but i moved when i was like super young new york was so uh it's so prestigious like it's it's like glitzier right like it's in new york city and you're running over these iconic bridges and you're running past these iconic buildings and you feel very very small like everything is so big around you you feel small you're running the tiny little pack across the queensborough bridge you're doing all these things and when you you know i was the first year i ran it when i got third i was like suffering you know, that was my first marathon. And I remember thinking like, I have to drop out. I cannot take this another second. But I would look to the side and there were so many people deep, like, where would I even go? And so, I'm, I mean, I'm glad I finished, obviously. Um, but it was really hard. The thing that I loved about Boston was, first of all, you're running through neighborhoods, which to me made it feel, I want to say safer. I want to say more like a training run, more like a hard training run, more like the way I grew up running. So something about that was very comforting to me. And then the way everybody knows the marathon. I mean, everybody knows the history. And I think that's one of the things that I loved about it was just all the history and all of the performances and the city, the people, they know all of that, right? And so there was something about that that was a little bit different. Running down Boylston Street for me the first time I ran there was totally heartbreaking because I watched first and second get away and I moved all the way to the side of the street because I thought maybe they'll tie up and they won't even realize I'm here and I'll be able to swoop by, but that did not happen. So, I mean, they're both amazing, amazing marathons, but I mean, obviously I went back to Boston two more times. So Boston, I had that bug of like, I need to go and I need to conquer this race and it never quite happened, but I don't regret running there three times. I loved every experience. Conquering it means that that you had to win it. Is that yeah. what you mean by conquering? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Had to win. Had Didn't to happen. win because you were on the podium. And New York, one of the things that I always thought was weird is I remember doing the race and then one time driving to the airport and seeing that blue line as I'm driving to the airport thinking, I was on this road like this road with nobody else with no cars on this road like major major road that's one of the interesting interesting things you talked a couple of times and you and you said it about adam that he was making it to the olympics and he was doing it clean how much does running clean because running is in so many ways it's like the purest of sports because mm-hmm. everybody can run. You can run, you can go for however long a distance, but with drugs, with technology, the purest of pure sports can get bastardized. Yeah. What do you want me to say? You want me to riff on this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, what, so yeah, so so the idea of, of clean sport, what is, how... How did you, why is it so important to you, I guess, is really the important part 
And I think really, let's just go with that. Why, why, why is clean sport so important? Because for me, I always knew I wasn't the best, but I wanted to see how far I could take it. And could I catch a lucky day? And could I catch an open window and all of these things? But it was about, I know I'm going to find my limit eventually, but like, how far can I take that? The drug part, it is, it just makes me so sad. And a couple of my childhood idols, like when I found out about the history of certain things, devastated. I mean, like literally, Chris, I had Carl Lewis and Flojo and JJK, all those people of that generation that, I mean, they're not all dirty, but like Edwin Moses, people who I just idolize that, that golden era. And ironically, they were all sprinters and I can't even sprint to save my life. But when I started to hear stories about some of that or you know, Marion Jones or even Lance Armstrong. I, it was just devastating because what I love is seeing someone do something special and you can't do something special every day that you step out there to compete. And that's what makes it so special when you do. And that like those performances, I grew up being so inspired by and so motivated by, and to learn that some of them weren't real. It's just, it's so devastating. For me, and I mean, a lot of it's just the way I was raised to think that I would do something to get faster that wasn't ethical. I just like feel shame right away because I think about having to tell my grandpa or him finding out or my mom, right? I'm serious. Like, I just feel like that makes me want to throw up that I would have to tell them that I took a shortcut. So like, not everybody gets to be the best. I never got to be the best. I'm like the queen of third place. You know, I never got to be the best at the highest level, but I love that experience and not everybody gets to be, it's not like you're right to get out there and win, but it was, it was worth taking. It was journey worth taking, even to find out that I was third. And so, I don't know, it just matters so much to me and it matters so much to my husband. And I think together then as a team, it was like, we just reinforced it to each other. There was no, there would be no um, pride in our effort and when what we're doing with our lives we're putting other things on hold to do this and we're and there would be no pride in it if we were taking any shortcuts and so I don't know it's a tough it's tough to explain it but it's just like a feeling inside of like this sport just what you said is so pure and I used to believe that I used to be like running is the purest sport everybody has a fair shot and it's been really really hard to learn that that is not true there, there are so many different parts of this. So like in 2000, I competed in Sydney and, and Rick Riley, who wrote for the back page of Sports Illustrated at the time said, cause I mean, we're, we're, we're an obscurity in a lot of ways. I mean, in Atlanta, I competed in Atlanta and it was one of those where they said, oh, now we get our city back. Like we want our city back after the Olympics had gone. And you're like, but we've been working so long to get here. Like we want to be here. And Sydney was so embracing, but Rick Riley's article was about then the real cheaters showed up, and 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 there were some there were some you know there were some drug issues. There was a, there was a thing called boosting that some of the quadriplegics do, where they can get their heart rate up artificially. Uh, there, there was actually it, it there was a demonstration basketball event that had intellectually disabled athletes. And the Spanish team ended up winning and they had a, a team of like journalists and lawyers on the team, you know? And so, and, and there's, there's a part of it that you think, okay, if something means enough, 
then somebody's willing to cheat. And, and so there's a backhanded kind of flattery on some level of like, okay, it means enough that people are willing to cheat. Okay, that that's something. We've arrived somewhere. But I'm like you in the sense of, I want to believe in this spectacular, like, I feel like we as human beings, as the audience, I watch you compete or I watch somebody do something that I never thought was possible. And I go, we did that. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't do all the work for it, but we as human beings did did the work. And then denying someone the opportunity to reach the finish line first, when the drug test happens afterwards. And so somebody gets disqualified, but this is your grand moment. And you yeah. lost that grand moment, which to me is just like, I mean, that's that's the most heartbreaking thing to deny somebody the moment of a lifetime. Absolutely. And that's what happened in 07 is, and Joe Pavey ended up fourth. Fourth is amazing, but fourth doesn't get you a big contract. Fourth doesn't get you a, a ceremony when you come home. Fourth doesn't get you magazine covers. And obviously this is a smaller scale of being denied Olympic champion, but when they retested samples, they realized that the woman who had finished second had steroids in her system. It was just such a small amount. They couldn't test it back in 07. And so we went to London and we got the proper, we stood on the proper podium spot. And so that was in 2017. So it's 10 years later, we both now have children and, you know, I got to stand on the podium and maybe it wasn't the proper spot, but I got to, I had huge financial gain, huge opportunity, you know, huge opportunities covers of magazines for years and years and years. And Joe should have had that too. And she didn't. And so that's the stuff that like, I get so sad. Like even when these articles come about, about doping in other countries or the ARD has done these programs, undercover programs. And then I start to think like, all I ever wanted to find out was how good I was. And I actually don't know. And that's the kind of stuff that will like drive me crazy. It's like, yeah, I got eighth at the Olympics, but did I? Maybe I got third. Maybe I got fourth. Even if it is just eighth, I just want to know because that was my goal was to see how far can I take it. And you like, like I said, like not everybody gets to win. That doesn't mean it's not worth pursuing. But I just wanted to know, like, how good was I? And what what was I being compared to? Was I being compared to something that was real or not? And it just sucks. It, it, well, it does. And and you also went through that at the trial. And I've got to I've got to actually finish my thought on the Sydney games as well, is that it was the greatest games that I've been to just in terms of the summer games, in terms of like the support that we had from from the people and, and the performances. So he might have said there were the, the real cheaters, but we also had an amazing games. But I want to get to the so it was a 2016 Olympic trials. And I didn't know any of this stuff until we were talking on the Boston Marathon coverage last year. And you were talking about the shoe technology and how much, and you said there was, there was some woman that it was like 8% difference or something. Like yes. In performance, 8% 8 difference in performance that goes from like, not even in the race to To dominate race. Yeah. Yeah. So shoot. So this is like, 
I can get on talking about true technology. The rules have been rewritten now that they are allowed, but at the 2016 Olympic trials, I had never heard of shoe technology. That's not even like a thing that I thought was a thing. And there were shoes used in that race that were not declared or anything like that, that at the time broke the IAAF rules, which were that you couldn't have a spring-like device in your shoe. You could not have technology that wasn't available to everyone. And you couldn't have a device in your shoe that gave you an unfair advantage over your competitors. Well, we now know that was the vapor fly and there's been a bazillion tests and it, the research is very, very clear that it gives you multiple minutes at the elite level in a marathon. At the time, I didn't know this. I was sort of like, I was in my late thirties. This was my last hurrah. I moved my family to Colorado so that I could have one last shot at making an Olympic team so I could live at altitude full time so that my son could go to school and I could still pursue this dream. And at the time, you know, it, I got fourth and it was like so heartbreaking, but I lost to three amazing athletes. And even with the shoe technology piece, I will still say I lost to three amazing athletes, but yeah, I find out a year and a half later about these shoes. And I think what bothers me about the whole thing is not that these athletes use these shoes. It's that the rules were there. And instead of um, some sort of sanction or acknowledgement on behalf of our governing body, they just quietly changed the rules. They just got together and changed the rules. And so for me, as I'm like such a rule follower, right? Like I'm like, not everybody get, deserves to run in the Olympic games. You have to be clean and do this. And like, there are rules, right? right? And so it bugs me that that's a rule we say, oh, that's okay. It's going to push the sport forward. Just ignore it. When, you know, it's like, I, if you look at the data and I'll never know, cause I can never rerun the race. But if you look at the data, there's a very good chance I should have made that Olympic team. And so it's just hard. It, and then it gives me mixed emotions when I look back because I looked back at that as, hey, I climbed out of an injury cycle. I ran really well. I almost made another Olympic team. And I was very proud of the effort I had put in throughout all that. But then now it leaves me a little hollow because I'm like, well, maybe I should have been in Rio and maybe I should have been competing for my country one last time. And maybe all the things that I had sacrificed, my family had sacrificed, it, it, they should have paid off. So yeah. Yeah. And you know, I mean, that's the thing that I think that for a lot of casual observers, we, we think of an endurance race of like, it is like a, a race of will in so many ways, like whoever wants it more is going to win, which is a complete fallacy, right? I mean, right. This is, right. Cause you know, within like infinitesimal kinds of, 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 you know, seconds, by by you know minute by particular seconds on your minute per mile or whatever like this is the range that you that where you need to be where you can be where you can be based on your training and and if that changes incrementally a one percent change i mean you're talking about minutes right over a marathon which yeah. is a huge 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 deal when yeah like, a minute is is what two seconds less per mile you know a little bit more than than two seconds less than per mile which is a big deal yeah a professor just uh explained it to me this way you lined up at the olympic trials marathon and you let two of the very best runners in the united states go and you all just stood there and then two and a half to three minutes later you guys started 
And then I'm like, well, how could you, like, you can't give people time, right? Like these are the best athletes in America and the best athletes in the world, some of them. So you can't seed them time. Now you're, you're playing catch up the whole time. And so this has sort of changed a lot of road racing. And it's been hard for me because I'm not a fan of how it's changed. As we saw at Boston this past year, Nell Rojas was the number one American in the 2021 version. This year in 2022, she has a sponsor. She's excited. At the very last second, literally hours before the marathon, she leaves her sponsorship because she doesn't get the same performance gain from her new sponsor shoe as she did from the old one. And now I don't blame her for doing that, by the way, at all. But now she won't get a sponsorship because that company knows she has to wear our shoes. So we don't have to pay her to wear our shoes because we know she's going to wear our shoes. And so it's all these complex things to the sport that, you know, it just makes me sad because as we talked about at the beginning, it is so no longer put on a shoe and see what you can do that day. Anything could happen on any day. It's not like that anymore. There's all these layers of all these other things. You have to choose a coach now, depending on what company they work for. Well, does that shoe work for me or not? Even though I love that coach and I know that's the right coach for me, I can't run for them because they don't, I can't wear their shoes. I have to run for this coach who I don't like, you know, I mean, it just changes the entire sport and it's like maddening. Like I want to like bash my head on the desk. That is far more complex than I ever would have imagined that, that all these intricacies, is there a part of you that wants to go back to, okay, we're just going to run barefoot. Yeah. Yeah. People say that to me all the time. Oh, you want to run barefoot? Yeah. Because at least that's fair. And we don't know what's going on in the sole of a shoe that we can't see. Um, look, I'm not against moving the sport forward. This is what people always say. I'm a curmudgeon. Oh, you want people to still be running on cinder tracks? No, but when they switched from cinder to uh, synthetic, everyone was on that synthetic track together. It wasn't the first three lanes were synthetic and then all these other people were pushed out on the cinder, right? I just want equal opportunity. And it, you know, and the sport went where it went and the governing body ruled the way they did. And it's just sad. And so I've been trying to just get more used to it and just like try to enjoy the racing again, but it's always in the back of my head. And I think it really reignited this past Boston because you were telling me about the chairs. <laughs> the carbon fiber chair. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. It's really everywhere with technology. And when is it great for the sport? And when does it actually hurt the results of what we're watching? Like, do we want to see the fastest wheelchair racer? Or do we want to see the fastest chair? Do we want to see the fastest runner? Or do we want to see the fastest person, the fastest, you know, technology in their shoe? And so for me, that's a very easy answer, but it isn't for a lot of other people. They want to see those performances. Well, it's a, it's a really hard answer in a lot of ways because you you want to see records broken. You want to see you want to see money coming into the sport. Yep. Uh, you want to see you know you want to see television. You want to see news. You want to see people who are concerned. I mean, because you you know I mean this is a sport that is so near and dear to your heart. You want everybody to know about how cool totally. the sport is and what that journey is. And, but at the same time, when the technology comes in and somebody's going to have better technology when the money comes in, it does not flow in equally. No. Means. But it's really hard, this idea of going back and creating a level playing field because, you know, as you said, you know, you're 5'8 and you're racing against these women who are 5'1. 
on the road and probably on the track too. They, I'm sure that they are more than happy to jump in directly behind you as the wind is blowing in your face. And they're like, Kara, you look great up there. Just keep running fast. You know, <laughs> it's really nice for us to be tucked in drafting behind you. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, I mean, sport is, is, is never fair and the technology and the technology also then helps bring in other people to the sport too it's it's i mean there's so many different parts that you know the average person can be that much better it's sort of the prince racket kind of thing that you go to tennis and you're like oh the sweet spot suddenly is a whole lot bigger than it than it was back in the day is and and yeah looking at the wheelchair side of it i mean it's it's a little bit heartbreaking when you know that there's a a one percent two percent difference i mean when you're up against the 1%, 2% difference, what do you have to do? How much better do you have to be in order to overcome that technology? Right. But if it was doping, we wouldn't say it's pushing the sport forward. We wouldn't no. say you need to overcome that. We'd say that's not fair. Right. So mm -hmm. that's where it gets, it gets hard and complicated. And that's why I feel like you and I, when we get to call races, we have an important job to not just focus on the fast times, but to focus on the individuals, right? Because the times will come and go, records are falling like crazy, but let's also, so that's exciting, but let's also sell who these people are, where they've come from, what they've come through, and then what's happening right now. It's not just a shoe bouncing around, there's also this tactical stuff, right? So I think that's where the job that you and I do becomes like difficult, but also really fulfilling for me to say, okay, I know we love the fast times. We're going to watch some fast times, but look at all these other things that are happening. I think that's one of the difficult things with, with the Olympics and the world championships on the track is that the, with sprints, you see fast times all the time because they, they just run as hard as they can and whatever that is, that is. But in the 1500 and up, there's more tactical things going on. There's other things. So like I was just in a meeting and they were saying, oh, we just never see an Olympic record in the distance events at the Olympics. And it's just so hard because we want to be, and I'm like, but then well, we can still package and tell them why we're not seeing a world record and what still is incredibly happening out there, right? So it's just, I think it makes like our job important to really tell these stories when the races are happening, if we're allowed to tell them because we weren't allowed to work at Chicago this year or we, we weren't given the opportunity. <laughs> we weren't given the opportunity to work in Chicago, exactly. Yeah. That telling the story, it's interesting that you bring that up because we've both gone into into broadcasting and are doing some broadcasting, which I which I absolutely love and I know you do as well. How much because because there's so many different parts of it, right? I mean, there's there's a part of like we have to actually get good at what we do to be able to communicate it, but also to be able to communicate the the intricate parts, the strategies, the things that people might not see that might help them appreciate it more. But then also, like, I mean, I've seen you, I remember seeing you at Boston where it's like hugs all around, like you're seeing all, you know, and, but yet you might well have to be critical of, of someone who happens to be a great friend and, and a former peer. How, how do you, how do you, what attracts you to the sport? And then how do you balance it in doing the yeah. broadcast? I think I just love it and I want people to know why I love it and I want to describe like what's happening and what they're thinking so that people can say like oh they're running a marathon no they can say oh wow who's gonna break this person looks good that person fell off what's gonna happen this person's the kicker they haven't dropped her yet so that they're like more 
involved. I do know a lot of the athletes um, and I have my favorites, but I would never do that on camera. And sometimes I have to say like this person made a mistake, but I would never do it in a way that was like, what the hell were they thinking out there? You know what I mean? Yeah, like we not all this make mistakes. Stupid. Right. Yeah, nothing like that, right? Like you can say like, this was probably not the best move. And I think this has cost this person or this person was out a little too hot. And that's why we see them suffering now. And we had hoped they would factor and they're not going to now. So there's a way to say things without just being like, why the hell did they do that? That cost them everything, you know? And so I think there's, I think that's something that I'm not a criticizer unless I need to stand up for someone I love. And so that kind of comes easy for me to like, point out where a mistake was made, but not like dig it in. Like this person is so dumb. They just cost themselves the Boston marathon. Right. Well, I mean, we saw like, like, uh, so it wasn't last year. It was the Boston marathon in 2020 or 2021 when they ran in the fall. And, and we saw, and I don't remember his name, like the guy who went oh, off the CJ Albertson. Yeah. <laughs> which was I mean like as a fan I'm like this is awesome this is so cool like he's just running away from all these guys and he said he runs downhill well so he's got to take advantage of what he run what he does well but but I mean that that was interesting I feel like to a certain extent for you that was a bit surprising right to watch him. oh it was totally surprising in commercial breaks I'm like googling who is CJ Albertson like I didn't expect that and he went he was so far. Didn't he make it to like mile 18 or something still in the lead? Yeah. And so it, to the, it was to the hills, to the Newton Hills, basically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so for me at first, I, I mean, I did think I was like, what the hell is this guy doing? But as he got further and further along, and then, then I learned he was an ultra marathoner, then I started like rooting for him, you know, I'm like, well, this would be like an epic, epic, you know, event to pull off. And then you know, when they caught him, I thought they were just going to spit him out the back and that'd be the end of it, but he still hung in there. And so even though it was totally unexpected and for the first five miles, I was like, this guy's insane. In the end, it ended up being like a super cool story. And I did say, I think to you, like he, uh, he was interviewed at the end. He was like, I just want to run as hard as I can at the beginning. And I was like, he should call me because I could give him a little bit of advice on strategy, but you know, he came back this past year and ran really well again, you know, not, he went out hard again, but not quite as hard. And um, I think he finished top 10. So I mean, he is who he is, right? And, and in, in 2021, it was great to see him because then he, you know, they caught him, they passed him on the Hills and then he came back on the downhill yes. again. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this is, there's something smart and it makes for a really interesting race to and, and and I think that that's what you and I are both trying to trying to communicate like why should you love this why should you love this sport why should you love this race if we can give you a chance of appreciating it that much mm -hmm. more then it's better can we talk just a little bit we're just about just about at the end but running being such a such a huge part of your heart having to deal with the repetitive exercise dystonia I mean do you imagine, so like retiring from the sport, this is kind of the way that I imagined retiring from the sport was that every day I went out would sort of be like a long Sunday run, you know, like that, that like long, easy, like, oh, everything feels good. Like you come home, you leave happy, you come home happy, like everything. Is that how you, you sort of imagine the kind of happily ever after of, of running? And then now you're confronted with this. 
Yeah. And, you know, it was like that for a while. I had people taking me up to the mountains, showing me these incredible runs, all these things I had never done, like running on the continental divide. And so for a while it was like that, like, sure. I was saying yes to everything. Take me here. I've never been there. Let's go do that. And then, you know, I started to have all these weird symptoms, got scared, and then eventually was diagnosed with runner's dystonia or repetitive exercise or, or specific task dystonia. And it's been, it's been hard. It's been like, there's been times where I'm really struggling and I have a hard time walking, which is where I'm at right now. I think I overdid it a few weeks ago. And so like my husband and I, before I sat down with you, we were walking the dogs and I'm like all over the place. And I, I really need like a little walking stick to help me. And it's like, I'm just like, how in the hell am I here? But then a few weeks ago, I was feeling really good. And I was helping a friend that was preparing for New York around my fastest or my farthest run in almost three years. And so I'm still just sort of like learning this balance. Um, but it's been hard to adjust to. And I know like in the scheme of life, being told you really shouldn't run anymore, it's, it's not that big of a deal, but I just can't describe to you how it is such a big deal to me. And I running is like, it's the greatest gift I was ever given. It makes me feel better about myself. It helps me de-stress. It helps me like, I'm a better mom. I'm a better wife. I'm a better employee. Um, and I just love it. I love the fresh air. I love the freedom. And so it's been really hard. And I just had my diagnosis a year ago. Um, and so I'm still really, really learning what I can and cannot do. What what exactly happens? I mean, the idea of repetitive exercise, is this a result of having run for so long? And and if it is, what is it, what does it do? Is it neuro, is it a neurological thing that happens? Yeah, it's a, it's a rare neurological disorder. So they don't know why it happens. A lot of people, it starts with a fall. I did take a really, really bad fall where I actually was unconscious right before my symptoms started. So I don't know if my symptoms were kind of starting and that's why I fell. Um, anyway, they don't know for sure, but your brain wires get crossed. And so for me, I don't have any control of my left leg essentially from the knee down. So I don't have confidence that it's planting. I can't feel. And so for me, it literally feels like I'm on like fresh Zambodied ice and my foot is just slipping on nothing. It's just not making contact. And so I have fallen numerous times because I literally have the sensation that I have not made contact with the ground and I'm falling, even though my foot has made contact with the ground. And so it's so hard and confusing. And like right now I'm going through a rough patch and even walking, I know that my foot is touching the ground, but I can't feel that it's touching the ground. I, I don't know that it's going to come through and land properly. And so the treatment is um, like, you can get a deep brain implant, which will like, supposedly refires the neurons. And I'm not there yet because I've been able to manage it. I am on a medication, a Parkinson's medication, which has helped me, but it does, does have long-term effects that I don't want. So I know that I need to eventually come off of it. But the most common treatment is Botox because when I, when they put a, a needle in my leg to like measure how it's working, if they tell me flex, it, you can hear it, it goes, right? All this, the neurons are firing, you can hear everything. And then they tell me to relax and it just keeps going. It just doesn't stop. And so the, what the treatment is Botox because they put the Botox in and it just completely disrupts the signal. So it can't, but the thing is now you're running differently, right? Because you're, you're 
your leg is dead. Like my calf and my posterior tib have Botox. So it's like this whole, it gives me a ton of relief. I feel I can trust my foot better. Um, but it also, everything else has to work because my posterior tib and my, and my calf have been cut off essentially. So it's just like this, yeah, this long process of knowing how much Botox is good for me, how much is too much, how much is good, or maybe this isn't the proper treatment, but you really have to give everything time. And that's what I'm trying to be patient right now and say, Hey, I, this is a two or three year journey to figure out, you know, where I can be. This is one of the greatest challenges, right? Because the thing that you did, the thing that you were really good at was working really hard mm -hmm. to, to get faster and faster. And then is that the thing that you can employ with this current situation is, is the dilemma in a lot of ways, like, do you have to find a new solution to your approach to a physical problem that, that is, as you said, a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, community-wise problem? And, and mm -hmm. that's the, that to me sounds like, like the biggest, the, the, the biggest challenge. Do you, what can you tap into that you used as an, as an athlete and that you've learned in your 44 years that kind of says, I can, I can do this. I can be whole, I think too, mm -hmm. is the big question, right? Yeah. I think like, you know, you and I are elite athletes. Like when I first had this problem before it was diagnosed, I was like, I'll just tough through it. I know my leg is there. I'm looking down. I see that my leg is there. And so I would push through it and push through it. And I had a friend I would run with and he'd be like, Kara, this cannot be good for you. Um, and you know, that's just like the mentality of just, I'm just going to push through it. And I've learned that that is not, I cannot do that. And so I'm trying to practice like the patience, right? Like I had long-term goals that were years out and I had to have this patience, but I, but the whole, the thing about feeling whole has been really, really hard for me. And I will say like, I've started to coach a couple people and I have really felt that wholeness from their success and from their achieving goals they didn't think they could achieve. I have a friend that's running New York in a couple of weeks and it really is unfair to him how much I am like invested in him running this PR. It's really not fair, but I know he can do it. And I know the work he's put in and it has been interesting to be able to get some of that fulfillment through other people's success. Well, it's other people's success, but it's also, I mean, you're in a position of being more like a coach and a consultant and a sage in some ways, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm invested, right? Like I'm very invested in what happens with these athletes, but you know, and I think that's something I'm still working on for myself is how do I, you know, again, with the elite athlete mentality, it's like, I'll just work more. I'll just do this more. I'll just do whatever. But like, at some point I really need to be like, I have to be okay with, if I can ever run again, I need to find a place where I'm okay with that. And I'm, I mean, if I'm being honest, I am not there now. I'm not there yet. Yeah. I, I am sure. I mean, it's, it's a huge, you're, you're still, you're still young. Your 16 year old self might've, might not have thought that you were young. <laughs> right, now. right. But my 44 year old self is like, I'm so young. Yes. But but that's that's a that's the reconciliation and the and the hard part of having been an athlete and utilizing your body as an instrument 
and and that instrument fails at times and sometimes it's injuries and it's i remember trying to get back into shape and having issues with my shoulder you know and, and as soon as it felt like oh, okay i'm i'm here i'm just about there then i had then i had injury issues then i'm going backwards you know mm-hmm. and but but what sounds really cool and and maybe this is helpful and maybe it's not is that you are sharing your knowledge both with with friends with your with your son and and then also sharing your knowledge with the audience as well so 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 there is there is an opportunity and a bit of a transition but obviously hopefully that's not the only opportunity is is what we're looking for but but yeah this is i mean i i just think what you're doing is amazing i mean just, it's been a pleasure to work with you so i am rooting for you to to be as great as you can possibly be so that's Thank that's, you. that's my two cents i appreciate it i like working with you too we got to get nbc to get us back out there exactly we need to get them to work with us so anyway uh Kara, thank you so much for joining us for for sharing your story i mean i just think it's so cool and i think that giving people a way to understand running, which is the simplest, purest of sports, but not necessarily the simplest and purest of sports as well. And there's a lot of strategy and tactics and technology and doping and all of these other things that are part of what goes into, into this amazing sport. But thank you for, thank you for sharing that with so many people and giving all of us a better understanding and appreciation. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is always a pleasure. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed it. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends. Please tell your friends to tune in that they that they have to that they have to watch, that they have to listen, that they can't miss it. Uh, please like us and follow us and we will do our best to bring you another great guest next week. Thanks very much. See you soon. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.